the Watergate scandal continues to grip the nation as the infamous 18 and a half minute gap in existence. There's a case. Has the state was never subpoenaed? What? Nobody knows it exists. I think the best course of action is that I take the tape. I give you this tape, you splash it all over the cover of the Times, it gets traced back to me in a heartbeat. You win the Pulitzer and I get indicted. Hi, it's the Microfilm Podcast. I'm Gav Smith. Um, bit of a change to our usual show this episode. For a change, we're not doing someone's favourite film, um, which I know is a bit sort of odd with the title of the podcast being my favourite film. But in this episode, I am joined by writer and director Dan Mervish, and he is going to talk about his own film, 18 and a Half. Hello, Dan. How's things? Hey, Gav. Nice to nice to meet you. Happy to be here. Yeah, lovely to meet you too. Um, I mean, can you just tell us... I've, I've basically I've said you're a writer director. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, that type of thing? I mean, obviously, writing directing. <laughs> yeah, um, right, exactly. I write and direct independent feature films uh, and produce them and do craft service and whatever else needs to be done on them, edit <laughs> them, uh, anything else. Um, and I'm also a lot of people know me. I'm one of the co-founders of the Slam Dance Film Festival, which is a festival that goes on same time as Sundance. And um, uh, and I'm I've written a couple books. Uh, I wrote the Cheerful Subversives Guide to Independent Filmmaking, uh, which is a great guide to independent filmmaking, as as the yeah. the name implies. Um, and written a couple other things. So that that's a little bit about me. Yeah, and I'm yeah. based in LA. In Los Angeles, um, where it's it's nice and early in the morning, whereas I'm recording quite late <laughs> at night. So. <laughs> um, right, this film, Eighteen and a Half. Uh, it's a really interesting film. I watched it the other night. Um, actually, I think I've watched it twice because you sent me the screen a long time ago and I watched it, and then I watched it again. Um, I mean, here in, in the UK, the Watergate scandal is not a big sort of historical thing. It's not on everyone's lips. It's not something that people really talk about. Um, and obviously, it happened back in what seventy four. So I was three at the time. So yeah, <laughs> not something that I really remember happening. Um, could you just give us a, pl- a quick plot synopsis of this film, Eighteen and a Half, please? Sure. The, the film, it, first of all, it's it's historical fiction, so you don't you don't really need to know anything about Watergate um, to go into it. We're mainly dealing with fictional characters around the time of Watergate, yeah, and, and around the events of there. Um, but Watergate, basically, for those who don't know, was a was a political scandal involving President Richard Nixon, and and which eventually led him to resign from office. Um, but a big part of it was there he made recordings of uh, voice activated recordings of everyone in his office, including himself. And at one point, he had to turn them over to the courts, and there was an eighteen and a half minute gap in the recordings, and for decades it's still a mystery as to what what was happening in that gap anyway our movie is about a uh a young woman played by uh, willa fitzgerald who's a um transcriber in the nixon white house and she stumbles upon this this tape of the 18 and a half minute gap and she wants to leak it to a reporter uh and they meet up at a seaside resort and they run afoul of uh swingers hippies and nefarious forces <laughs> out to get them that's the short version. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good version. But yeah, you've obviously done yeah. this before, haven't you? <laughs> Given the synopsis of your film. Uh, is Watergate something that's always interested you then from a point of view of sort of American history? 
Yeah, it, it definitely, it's always interested me. I, I was in college, I was a history and political science major. Actually, one of my professors was kind of tangentially a victim of Watergate. Oh, right. Um, then I then worked in Washington for a couple of years as a speechwriter for a senator. And so I sort of encountered people that had been, you know, touched by Watergate one way or another. Um, yeah. And so it had always kind of fascinated me. And about 12 years ago, I co-wrote a political satire novel set in Washington, and that had a chapter about Watergate and the 18 and a half minute gap. So right. it's an area that I've kind of dipped my toes into and certainly been aware of and been fascinated by for, for years. And um, and this, this project came around because I kind of, uh, a friend of mine, Terry Keefe, owned this motel uh, called the Silver Sands Motel, which is on the tip of Long Island, uh, like three hours outside of New York City. And it, his grandparents had built it in the 50s and 60s, and they, um, and he had maintained it as this kind of vintage-looking motel. And it's been, I mean, see, it's a, it was a working motel, but he had also rented it out as a uh, location for a lot of fashion shoots, like Vogue and Harper's high-end yeah. fashion shoots. But I said, um, hey, he said, you know, no one's ever shot a feature here and we're close in the winters if you and the cast want to come out here. And I looked at this place and it kind of looks trapped in amber from 1974, yeah. the neon sign, everything. And I said, all right, well, let's make a Watergate movie here. You know, this is the <laughs> place and the time to do it. And, uh, and we teamed up with our, our writing partner, Montana Moya. And we fleshed out the script and uh, and and Daniel, coincidentally, his aunt and uncle owned a diner, a vintage looking diner just down the street. And we're like, yeah. well, that's two locations. The <laughs> indie film rules say if you have two locations, you have to make a movie. You know, that's, <laughs> that's literally in the, rule, in the book I wrote. So uh, so we did. So we made it. And that's uh, that's how we came up with it. It's one of those things, I suppose. And uh, I was going to ask about the sort of British effects of it because. It, in Britain, we don't, like I said, we don't really talk about it over here. Is this something that, that's always walking, one of those things that's hit the school curriculums over in America? Do, you, do they talk about it in schools or is it well kind of swept yeah, under the carpet they, now? They, <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's funny. I mean, whenever you learn history, you never learn uh, in school. You never learn the most recent history. Mm. So like when I was going to school, we didn't learn about Watergate because our American history classes stopped in 1960. Yeah. But I... I'm not that much older than you. And I remember Watergate because it was on TV like 24 seven. Yeah. You know, throughout 1973, cause it was, a, it was a long scandal. It ended in 1974, but it really started in 1972. So yeah. it lasted about two and a half years. So it was very much on everyone's conscious conscience. And, um, and it was, it was part of the zeitgeist and, and kind of, and keeps coming back like uh, you know as soon as trump was elected all these pundits yeah yeah go show up on cnn that that were prosecutors or witnesses in the watergate scandal and anytime someone talks about impeachment they talk about watergate yeah, yeah so yeah. it's really this this it was a pivotal time in american history too because it was really it was post-vietnam yep. or, or vietnam was just ending around then and it really was a nail in the coffin of, of americans trust in authority and trust in in government governmental figures yeah and um, and there were a lot of reforms that came after watergate uh in in terms of election campaign laws um the presidential records act which is now uh you know uh, they just indicted trump for violations of <laughs> yeah. of uh you know handling classified documents and all, that all goes back to the watergate era right. um so but 
current students now do learn about it as history. Right. It's, a, it's a chapter in the history books. Good. So, and there have been tons of other movies about it. Uh, yeah. Ross Nixon yeah. and Dick, um, you know, so it's something that uh, Secret Honor, Robert Altman's film, there's a lot of other films that have uh, come, you know, come out. And then just in the last two years, uh, stars had, uh, a, 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 you know, six episode miniseries called Gaslit with yeah. uh, Julia Roberts and Sean Penn. And then HBO just came out with um, White House Plumbers that w- with uh, Woody Harrelson. So, uh, so yeah, it's something that American culture just keeps coming back to because yeah, it's yeah. sort of, you know, Nixon's sort of this Shakespearean type figure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have yeah. to that. But I think what was interesting in showing the, you know, the film played at 24 festivals on uh, four continents. Uh, and in the UK, we, we actually won the, or I won the best director prize at the Manchester film festival. And I was there yeah. for that. And it was interesting because as it was coming out at the festival in the UK, and then later when it was released in the UK, everyone was like, Oh, this reminds us of Boris Johnson. And you know, these yeah. goofy scandals that just kind of magnify yeah. and they just, you know, the cover up is always worse than the crime. And everyone's yeah. like, Oh, it's like Boris, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and in Brazil, everyone's like, oh, this is like Bolsonaro. And yeah, Spain, yeah, yeah. they're like, oh, it's like Franco. You know? So I think every country has had these kinds of figures that have these epic fall from graces um, one way or another. Yeah. Um, that, that people can relate to it no matter where they're from and no matter how much you know about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, certainly certain elements when especially the the tape when they actually play the 18 and a half minutes your yeah. fictional version of what it sounds like it, it reminded me of british politicians it was very much that <laughs> bumbling kind of thing we expected from boris when he was in power um but let's talk about your film because your film obviously it's about this 18 and a half minute tape now the 18 and a half minutes is played i would have thought it's probably not its entirety but it's played it's there in the background for that that whole final section mm-hmm. Yeah, where where did your, I suppose, in, where's that interpretation come from? I mean, it, it's obviously it's completely <laughs> fictional, so right? Yeah, where, exactly. where did you get that idea of what that you so, said in it? We did a, we did a lot of research um, because yeah, as you say, it's it it is you have to fictionalize it because it doesn't exist. It's mm. still a mystery, but there's a lot of other tapes from that same day tapes right. from you know two days later three days later there's a lot of these nixon tapes and and it's a conversation that he's having with his chief of staff uh haldeman and so we had a uh, great bruce campbell playing nixon yeah. um john crier playing haldeman and then uh, ted ramey plays um the second chief of staff and where nixon and he are deciding whether to uh delete the tape or not yeah. um and and it was interesting we you know part of it was to be able to craft what that tape would be that would serve our our own narrative purposes yeah you know we're making a movie it's got to fit these characters and who's on which side and and that kind of thing so it had to kind of intertwine a little bit with the action of the characters that we're seeing but um but you know there's been a lot of historians that have speculated about what's on the tape and and we actually after we shot the movie we talked to someone that was that was a staff member on the committee on the Senate committee then. And he was, his job was literally to listen to the tapes right. and to guess what was on the 18 and a half minute gap. And he said, yeah, your guesses were as good <laughs> as anything we ever came up with, you know, just as plausible 
as as they could have been and 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 as goofy as they probably yeah. were yeah. um you know so it was it was funny but but we actually did in doing the research we we discovered something that i don't think uh any other historians had actually found which is that, right. that two or three minutes after the gap so because it's the gap is part of a two-hour tape right and nobody's really transcribed the rest of the tape or even listened to it much because it's right. not about watergate but then about two minutes later they're talking about seeing a movie this is getting back to the name of the podcast yeah uh, nixon's <laughs> you know the they're they're talking about a movie called um called the hot rock which had just come out this is in so they recorded the tape summer of 1972 and the yeah. hot rock was i think a warner brothers film but it had um had uh, uh, Robert Redford in it, and um, it was written by William Goldman, and it's a it's a goofy heist film, right? And and there and his after his Nixon is saying, oh, you know, we should, I just saw this movie, and and I think Nixon had seen the trailer, and they're like, oh, it's a heist gone wrong, just like this Watergate thing, ah ha ha, and there's these <laughs> awkward laughs because this is recorded three days after the break in at this Watergate hotel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a heist gone wrong because these guys got bumbling uh burglars got got busted and then sure enough we check the records and and nixon watched that film uh three days later with his wife wow <laughs> and uh and of course the irony is that robert redford two years later or three years later would play one of the investigative reporters yeah, covering yeah. watergate in all the president's men absolutely yeah also written by william goldman wow um and uh and of course my own interaction with redford because i started slam dance and he called us a group of parasites so <laughs> I, i've run into him a couple of times um so it's all everything's connected but it was so it was fun like with with bruce and john and ted listening to these tapes really being the first people ever to listen to some of these other tapes right and, and bruce was really you know you know we didn't want him to just mimic the voice of nixon i mean we wanted it to be bruce campbell as nixon you know yeah and, and bruce is great because he he as a teenager he watched the watergate hearings religiously when he was a kid and so and he's been fascinated with watergate and he's done some right. comedy bits with ted Ramey before so um so he really embraced that that kind of both the the, the gravitas of nixon and, and all the shenanigans but also kind of the inherent humor like you know when they were recording this tape, they were fully aware they were living in a farce, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. uh, which is something, which is a bit of a twist in history that I don't think people even realize that Nixon was self-aware enough to know that, Oh crap. This, yeah. <laughs> this thing's all gone. It's all compassion. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, that, certainly that comes across in, in your version of the tape that he sounds like he's almost, it's probably Bruce Campbell's performance in that that he sounds like he's just taking the mick a bit out of himself. Um, but I guess that's probably Sometimes, Bruce yeah. Campbell is taking the mick out of the whole idea. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so well, what two... was funny was Nixon sometimes remembered he had this taping system, and sometimes yeah. he forgot about it. All right, okay. And it's and and when you listen to the real tapes, there's this weird dichotomy where he's saying something he knows you shouldn't say because he's forgotten the tape is on. And then there's other times he's like, Oh, I don't know anything about that. I yeah. don't I, You know, is this on? Hello? Hello? Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Which he does do in the tape. You hear him go, but I don't know anything about that. I don't know anything about that. Quite yeah. a few times he says that. Yeah. So exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So um, we played with that idea. Yeah. See, your main two characters in this are, are Connie and Paul. Connie's obviously the, <laughs> the transcriber working at the White House. 
and Paul Murrow's the reporter. Yeah. I mean, these are completely fictional people, I guess. These people yes. didn't yeah. really exist. Yeah, they're, com- they're completely fictional. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, was there some sort of, I don't know, are they based on anyone? That Was there a, a, this type of thing that there was someone that possibly had the tape? Did you base that on anything at all? Or well, just... yeah, we th- there is something. So, so the whole premise in the film is that, um, you know, there are these voice-activated recording systems, yeah. and there really are tapes of Nixon listening to his own tapes, you know, on a on a reel-to-reel tape recorder right, in yeah. a room that is then subsequently recording him record listening to these tapes and he's and he's fumbling with the buttons and things like that (laughs) and once we kind of discovered that again in the research um then that led to a plausible scenario that we it's not a spoiler i mean it's how the movie starts is that is that there is a tape of the tape so yeah nixon and his aides are busy erasing listening to and then erasing this tape but then they're in a room that is subsequently taping them and yeah. so that's how Connie stumbles into this thing. So yeah. it is based on a plausible scenario. There really could be this tape of a tape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll be so. out there for all we know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and once we kind of figured that out, then it became like, okay, so who who what is the kind of character that would have this? And, and it would be like a low level transcriber. And yeah. you know, I it, it's she's a little bit based on a character that was in this novel that I co-wrote, it was like the mother of the main character um, who had been an assistant in the White House. Again, another fictional character that uh, my friend and I created for this book called I Am Martin Eisenstadt. But, you know, but it's kind of based on when I worked in Washington, I was, you know, young 24 year old. um, And what I saw was there are these young people in Washington, fresh out of college, there's a ton of them. And they're working in some of the highest powers and pillars of government in, yeah. in Congress, White House, and they get access to, you know, a lot of information that probably should not be entrusted to 24 year olds, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. and, um, and, and then, and then at various times you, you, uh, even as a young 24 year old, you confront the question, do I speak truth to power? Do I leak this information? Yeah. Um, and this is something that I dealt with a little bit myself, but it's something that is kind of a recurring theme in Washington. And the interesting was last year, um, right when the film was coming out, the um, January 6th committee hearings were coming out in the States. And I don't know how much this was covered, but there was this woman, also 25 year old woman in the Trump White House, Cassidy Hutchinson, who's leaking, you know, who's coming forward and yeah, speaking yeah. truth to power. And all of a sudden we realized, oh, wow, that's essentially the same character as Connie in our film, wow. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. in real life. And um, so and I'm sure in the UK you've had similar yes. you know, young people come forward, you know, yeah. uh, and everyone takes them for granted until they show up and, and leak stuff to the press. Exactly. Um, and the media. Yeah. And, and then I had also worked as a journalist, too. And, and I have friends that work at The Washington Post. And so sort of that's where that the Paul character, the reporter comes from. Right. Okay. What is that back and forth and the negotiation between someone leaking a whistleblower or someone leaking information and a reporter? And how do they preserve their anonymity? And yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, but still, you know, bring the goods forward. And then, um, yeah, so that was kind of where those two characters came from. Yeah. Your film is so different to all the other Watergate films because there's an awful lot of Watergate films out there. And if you look, 
If you go onto the internet, just type in Watergate, films about Watergate, there's just stacks and stacks of them. The US doesn't actually deal with Watergate at all, really. Right. It deals just with this right. 18 and a half minute tape. And actually, it's more about Connie and Paul booking into a exactly. hotel and trying to listen to the tape because most of the film, yeah. they, we don't hear the tape. The tape's basically the, the very final scene, effectively. What What's what's your influence of, on this film? What, was there other Watergate films that influenced you in this or is it influenced on farces and other things? <laughs> well, certainly of the Watergate films, I mean, All the President's Men is an yeah. amazing, amazing film. And, and I had seen that at a, at a screening at a festival just a few years ago. So it was, it's, it's kind of always in mind, although the, the narrative that movie stops before the gap even happens. Cause that right. movie is really about 1972 and 1970, early 73. And then it stops. Yeah. So, but that's, that's sort of the quintessential Watergate film, um, uh, secret honor, the one that, that Altman directed, which is just a one person performance. Um, of Nixon, uh, I mean that's great. the 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 best Nixon, you know, the best Watergate comedy is Dick, yeah, um, which is uh, which is still a terrific movie, and that also deals with the eighteen and a half minute gap in yeah. kind of a fictionalized way. Um, so those were definitely influences, but then also I looked and and as well as my cinematographer Al Schneider, I mean we both looked at a lot, and my writer Daniel, we looked at a lot of the early seventies films. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, the 70s conspiracy films like Clute and um, uh, uh, The Parallax View and um, uh, what are some of the other ones? And then the sort of goofier ones like The President's Analyst from, I think, right. 1967, um, Seven Days in May. That's also earlier in the 60s, um, just uh, for their aesthetic, uh, but their tonal quality. And, you know, but also film. I mean, I, I was very much influenced by robert altman his his uh right. knew him and and his his grandson is still my one of my producing partners dana altman and you know one of the films i think that really struck with stuck with me is one of his lesser known films was one of his best ones is uh is a wedding and you know what he pulls off in that as well as a lot of other films is these tonal shifts yes um you know to go from kind of crazy farcical comedy to all of a sudden someone dies you know yeah yeah and, yeah and how do you pull that off and make it a cohesive movie and that was something you know that we wanted to try in in 18 and a half to sort of go from thriller to farce to you know thriller again at the end um and uh and hopefully we pulled it off i don't know but um some people like it but part yeah. of it is just to to keep the audience not knowing what's next like yes. i want to surprise the audience i want to yeah. be surprised as an audience member yeah well um, I, mean, I mean certainly as as an audience member watching it there was a lot of surprises along the way for me there was yeah, things that yeah. happened that and, i just yeah. wasn't expecting at all exactly um, and, and, and even the cast were just... members were surprised so <laughs> sometimes i could imagine yeah <laughs> um i mean is there is the one is all the president's men is that your biggest influence then do you think on on you from a point of view of look at Watergate or is there a film that influenced you in a certain way, but maybe it's not particularly for this film. It's just something that's an influence on you as a director. Well, I, I think, I think having conversations with Altman um, yeah. because uh, Alan Pakula directed all the president's men and it is a great film, but I don't know that that was the most obvious influence on this. Right. Um, I think the scenes with the reporter negotiating with um, 
you know, with the, with the character, I think those are, you know, evocative of all the presence men a yeah. little bit. And, and it was funny, like, because my consultant on that is, does work at the Washington Post, which is you know, all right. where all the presence men takes place. So we, we definitely talked a lot about that, yeah. but, um, but no, I mean, I think a lot of what Altman did, um, you know, even in films like the long goodbye and, uh, you know, mash and countdown and Nashville, yeah, yeah. uh, but there's specific things he did. Uh, so every actor was always had their own individual lavalier mic. Right. And what that did, and he was really the pioneer in that. A lot of people do it now, but he was the first one to do it. And it allows the actors to have overlapping dialogue and allows much more naturalistic performances. Yeah. And um, and then you're making a lot more decisions in post-production. Yeah. Um, he also used the zoom lens uh, which we use a lot, but I think we use it in a little bit of a different way. But his, um, but his kind of his theory behind why he did individual miking was that why trust the lowest paid member of the crew, the boom operator, <laughs> to decide who's going to hear yeah, yeah. part of the conversation are we going to hear? Yeah, um, he said, I'm the artist. I want to be able to do that in post production. Yeah, And I've taken that theory and applied it to kind of the digital sphere where you can shoot a much larger. And as it turned out, through a weird technical quirk, we could we were actually in a lot of times we were shooting like a almost a four to one ratio is like super stretched out. Right. Yeah. Uh, which we didn't even realize at first. And then until we looked at the raw footage and we we're like, oh, my God, we have all this information on the left and the right. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. couldn't even see on set. And then kind of taking that idea and in post-production, then again, like don't always let the camera operator on set decide what the <laughs> image is going to be. I'd rather, you know, just go quickly, and especially on a low budget independent film, you know, shoot it quickly. Don't worry if it's the exact right framing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, you know, that first time out, because I know in post-production, I can move things to the left, move things to the right, zoom yeah. in. And so we did a lot of, in addition to the optical zoom lens, the, and we use vintage lenses from the right. 70s, we did a lot with um, with combining that with digital zooming and, right. and kind of pan, traditional pan and scan. Yeah. And um, and so that was that's very much kind of the Altman influence on me yeah. is kind of the way you do it. But the other thing that he really influenced me and, and Dana is he said, you know, tell everyone you've got a start date and you're making the movie and the train's leaving the station, you know? Yeah. And that is, that was a huge, that's been a huge influence on, on our films, um, you know, for the last 30 years. Be and especially with this one, because we started shooting March 3rd, 2020, what could possibly go wow. wrong in March of 2020? <laughs> and <laughs> if we had waited and we didn't have all the cast ready to go, there, right. but we had enough for the first week and then yep. we were still casting for the second week. But wow. if we had waited a week or two weeks to try to get the perfect cast, yeah. we'd be in the middle of a pandemic. We wouldn't have been able to go. Yeah. So as it turned out, we we did shoot the first 11 days of the right. of a 15 day schedule in March of 2020. Then wow. we found out we were the last feature shooting in North America and we had to shut down because right. yeah, of yeah. the pandemic. Yeah. Um, about a third of our 
crew, about eight people, wound up staying on location for two months wow. at this motel because they were afraid to go back to Brooklyn. These were all like the Brooklyn single hipster types on the crew. I don't know. If um, <laughs> but we wound up taking a six-month uh, healthy hiatus or pandemic yeah. pause. You know, came back to LA, started baking sourdough as one did, you know, and started <laughs> editing the footage we had. We had about seventy-five or eighty percent in the movie. Wow! And so I started editing that, and, and then we worked on the audio tape with with Bruce and. Yeah. And John and Ted doing it over Zoom, essentially. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. Uh, in like May or June of 2020, because actors were sitting around at home not doing anything. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. like, let's keep making this movie. We you, can do yeah, it. There's like a little 18 and a half minute radio course, yeah. play within the movie. Let's shoot that. So we did it. And then by the time the Screen Actors Guild and Directors Guild had come up with the um, the protocols for, for COVID safe filming, yeah. that was September 2020, almost exactly six months later then we wow. we returned to this location and shot the last four days you know with masks and yeah, shields yeah, yeah. and everything Gosh. we had to do to keep it safe which wasn't easy but I we got it, wasn't. it done yeah anyway but all of which like i say it goes back to the altman influence if he hadn't sort of ingrained that in our heads like set a start date you're making yeah. the movie you tell everyone and you believe it yourself um if we hadn't done that we probably never would have forget about finished the movie we never would have started the movie yeah yeah yeah, you wouldn't have started until September, if if at all, yeah? Yeah. Wow. If at all, right. Yeah. Gosh. You can tell that there's this 70s sort of aesthetic to it. When I was watching it, even though it, I knew it couldn't have been filmed on sort of 70s technology, that it does look like a 70s film. Um, so was that an intentional thing to try and make it look authentic and 70s, I guess? Yeah, I I sort of set a mandate for everyone on the cast and crew, uh, including myself, that we would only use creative techniques that could have been used in 1974. So, for example, there's no drone shots. There's yeah. no there's no Steadicam. Steadicam was really introduced in 1976. Yeah. Uh, uh, the lenses were were vintage lenses. The microphones and the recording techniques for the for the music. We haven't even talked about the music um, and the songs themselves. They're all original songs and yeah. tunes. My uh, great uh, composer partner, composer Luis Guerra, who I was uh, just talking to this morning. Um, he did all the music and it's all original Bossa Nova Brazilian yeah, influence yeah, yeah. music, but it's all new. And, um, you know, but in the style of the sixties uh, Bossa Nova or seventies, um, uh, uh, sort of early 70s psychedelic tropicalia is the yeah. name of the, the kind of style of brazilian music and then i wrote i wrote all the lyrics to those um but then we had them translated into portuguese and then sung by a brazilian right. singer in la who kind of went back and forth between la and, and recorded in brazil too wow. uh, and our, our horn section where these three guys in mexico city you know so <laughs> we really did it uh as old school as as possible yeah. um you know the the color correction i have to tell him like okay don't do a lot of the tricks that he normally does like yeah, yeah. you know do it as if we were doing it back then um and that was fun that was fun and the same with the actors and their intonations and you know uh, mannerisms and things like that we uh and you know fantastic costumes um our costume designer sarah kogan she collects old patterns so even right. though the fabric would be new that designs were were vintage designs yeah uh, they, uh yeah you know we had a great production designer monica and um and then we were relying on the um 
you know, she was able to find these these working reel to reel players that you find on eBay. Yeah. Look for him. Yeah. Um, then a lot of the rest of the sets were were what we found at the motel and and at yeah. the dining. Yeah, and there's there's a an interesting thing you do with some of the shots, and I don't know if this comes from you were saying you you had this sort of bigger format. Certainly, the place I noticed it the most was there's a point where Lena uh, is having a real go at Paul because he's he's in in the paper industry, um, yeah. and he's having this she's having this go at him because he's a reporter basically. Um, you do this this interesting thing where it's almost like the whole scene's been shot maybe ten or fifteen times, and you seem <laughs> to cut into yeah. it at different points. Or yeah. she says the sentence continues, but she's just in a slightly different position. Yeah, was that an intentional? Or did you did you film it fifteen, sixteen different times and then cut it together? So <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm glad you. Hopefully, you like that scene. But, I, I thought uh, it was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Um, so that's a it's a kind of cutting technique I've done in every one of my films. Right. Every every film I have has at least one of those kind of jump cutting yeah. scenes. But as I've gotten better as a filmmaker, I kind of know when to use it, when not to use it. Yeah. Uh, you know, we I, I mentioned earlier that you know we were still casting the movie while we were shooting it, and yeah. uh, so the characters of Lena and Samuel, who are these two kind of swinger characters. <laughs> yeah um brilliantly played by Kathy Curtin and Vondi Curtis Hall. Yep. They were only cast about 36 hours before they showed up. Wow. So wow. because you know we were starting to get into covid and it was yeah, really yeah. hard to get people and scheduling wise and pilot season anyway. But we got them and they were yep. great and we were very happy to have them. And the first thing Kathy says when she shows up is by the way, I can't do a French accent. <laughs> the supposed to be French, but we're like, all right, we'll work with what you have, and she's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's more of an Alsace Lorraine yeah. accent, you know. But uh, it's a it's a it's a trans European accent. Um, yeah. but it's which is fine. That's what her character is supposed to be, you know, from the World War II era. Um, and then she said, and this long monologue, which is like a two page monologue in the script, yeah. she's like, there's no way I can memorize that whole thing in time. And I said that's okay because the way I'm going to shoot that scene is with this jump cut style, which means that you can do something. And I think we only shot it like three or four times. It wasn't, right. you know, it wasn't that many times, but what it does is it, it frees actors up to, to do, to walk in different places and do yeah. their mannerisms different times, which is something that, on every other film and TV show, they're ingrained to do the exact same thing and motions and movements and yeah. uh, at exactly the same point from take to take. That's a, that's what the script supervisor, the continuity person tells them. Yeah. Like, no, you, that was the left hand. You shouldn't have the wrong hand. But when you're doing this editing technique and you know you're going to do it, you know, yeah. as opposed to fixing something later then you want to tell the actor no i want you to do something different every time and yeah. you know grab the french bread you know yeah grab the baguette in this take and do something to stand over here in that take and you know and this other take guess what the camera is going to be shooting reaction shots you can read the script <laughs> <you know? laughs> and then and so you don't have to worry about me even memorizing the script yeah know? yeah and then you get a good clean audio track that you can then use because we do, we cut into the reactions of the other characters and that, you know, when you tell that to an actor, 
that's nervous about yeah. memorizing that big chunk, it all of a sudden like frees them up and, and gets, you know, lets them just get into the character and focus yeah. on that and not worry about standing in the right place and memorizing all the lines. And, you know, and I think that was something both Kathy, but also at, at other times, um, you know, Vondi really appreciated, um, you know, all the actors did that, that yeah, yeah. I was, that I knew enough about what the editing style would be that we could do things like that. Yeah. Whereas other actors like and teams, pairs of actors like um, uh, Willa Fitzgerald and the great John McGarrow, who, yeah. who played Connie and Paul in the film, they had a little bit more time to rehearse. And, yeah. um, you know, so I knew that I could, you know, from day one, I was like, oh, with these two actors, I can do a long scene. I yeah, can yeah. do a three minute, four minute, five minute shot. Yeah. with them and and they'll and they can and they can deliver it yeah um, which which is not always the the case with different pairs of actors uh, but yeah. their pacing and their chemistry was just really perfect so we were like yeah let's do a one or three minute one or <laughs> five minute one or you know and sometimes it can take 10 15 takes to get the technical stuff right yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. focus pulled right is the dolly in the right place things like that but in terms of the actors they were they were nailing it every they time were right. so. yeah yeah must be that was that scene just it really stuck in my mind. It was the way it was cut. I, I really, it made the scene far more manic than it needed to be, but it made it really <laughs> manic, which was, it worked perfectly for the way that she yeah, was reacting. Thanks. So yeah. Really well, and, and part of it was also, you know, it's part of a, you know, spoiler alert, there's a 23 minute dinner scene in the movie, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so as a director and as a team of filmmakers, yeah. you're always struggling. Okay. How do we make this interesting? You know? Yeah. And and break it up into different sections and like, okay, the editing in one section is different than the editing here. How is the cinematography different once, you know, sometimes we're going in circles around the table, other times we're zooming in. Um, and that's the fun challenge with a scene like that is how do you make it dynamic and interesting when yeah. and otherwise it could just be four people sitting at a table and you've got well, dinner yeah. with Andre, Andre and Andre, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay, um, what I'm going to do, I'm going to do a quick ad break just here. Just to, well, it's not ad break, really, advise myself. Um, just to say, if anyone wants to get in touch with us here at the podcast, it's myfavoritefilmpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at myfavoritefilm. On Instagram, it's at myfavoritefilmpodcast. And we're all over Facebook, just search it up. And if you can't remember any of that, website www.myfavoritefilm.com. That's how to find it. Um, and just another plug for my wonderful writer, composer, team, uh, the Craig Whale collaboration, their new album, A Long Way Home, is available to buy and stream, download, wherever you like now. They obviously did our lovely theme tune, which I'm sure you will all have enjoyed at the start of the show. Uh, Dan, 18 and a half, is it available to easily download, stream, buy, whatever? Where where can we get it? Yes. Well, in the U.S., it and North America, well, in the U.S., it's available on Stars uh both streaming but it also scheduled it has scheduled airing times um but it's also on vod i think on amazon and itunes and things like that um in the uk it's on sky cinema right brilliant. Uh, it's playing on there as well as again on video on demand if you demand it it'll show <laughs> you up you can get it <laughs> not really sure how that works um in the rest of the world one of the interesting things is it is it's been playing on seven airlines around the world wow um, yeah JetBlue, virgin atlantic emirates qatar 
Air New Zealand, Singapore Air, and just most recently, Batik Air, which is a low-budget airline in the Philippines. Or no, in <laughs> Indonesia. Sorry, in Indonesia. Um, and uh, and that's been fun. A lot of people have seen it on um, on those airlines. And because the the title is 18 and a half, the number 18 and a half, it's usually yeah. the first thing that shows yes. up. Yeah. So, um but we ha we had a, a great theatrical run with the film in the US. It played yep. for seven months in 60 wow. theaters. Um, we're working on a DVD now, uh, at right. least for the US, maybe internationally too. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I was just talking to my UK distributor this morning and they're trying to get it to the rest of the world. Brilliant. They're working on a deal with Australia and, and other places. But it had played in in a bunch of festivals. So we know it plays well around the world. And yeah. and um yeah, so hopefully you can find it uh, if you're out there somewhere. Excellent. Excellent. I hope people do. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the film, a bit more into depth with it. Um, have you got a favorite character in the film? In this film? Well, one yeah. character we, we haven't talked about, um, but we should, is Richard Kind's character of... Um, yes. <laughs> of uh, He's the desk clerk at this yeah. motel. Uh, his name is Jack, and mm. and he has an eye patch, and it's played by the amazing, legendary Richard Kind. Yeah, um, and this is the second film I've done with Richard, and he's yeah. just great. He's you put him in anything, and people just grin, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, I must admit, I, I had a big smile on my face when he appeared. It was like, oh. yeah, oh, that guy. <laughs> yeah, uh, what's he doing there? And and he's a great dramatic actor too. It's not he's he doesn't just do comedy and no. he can do he can sing he can dance and he's just and he's great on set like all the other actors either know him or know of him every all yeah, the crew yeah. were like oh my god richard kind um he's great um and the character he brought a lot to the character yeah uh and then we've got these hippie characters uh uh played by sullivan jones and and uh and the saunders twins um yeah. i don't know if you picked up that they were twins and they're a lot of fun and um and we we tried to you know once we sort of met them and got to work with them we were like okay what more can we do with these yeah, yeah, yeah. characters and the whole wonder bread conspiracy which yes. weirdly enough is kind of true all right uh, okay wonder bread in 1974 which i don't know in the uk i think it's you have something like blimpy or what what yes. what is the soft white bread you have there it's I'm not it's it's not Wonder Bread. That's a very American brand, but yeah, I, 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 I don't know. To it. I don't think so. I, I don't know what Wonder Bread is. It's not something I've ever come across. So. Yeah, it's like super soft white processed bread. All right, okay, yeah. And and I know you have something like it. Uh, we do like have a get... um, Blinis, which could be what yeah, it maybe is. that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, but in America, it's a very ubiquitous thing, and and right. really sense you know the ultimate white bread thing but in 1974 it was as a company it was owned by itt which was this big international conglomerate that um was uh was bribing richard nixon for, for four hundred thousand dollars <laughs> and this was going to be the big scandal that he was defined by it was on the front page of every newspaper until watergate became an even bigger yeah scandal. yeah anyway so we but no one had ever made the connection that Wonder Bread was connected to ITT. And and so we have these characters that have this crazy conspiracy theory, which is actually not so crazy, um, <laughs> connecting Wonder Bread and Nixon. And, they, and they're just a lot of fun, you know, and we had a lot of fun with them and um, and, and writing songs for them and, and yeah, yeah. adding things for them. Yeah, they're great characters. Um, what, was there a reason behind Richard's eye patch? Was that just a... 
we'll put him in an eye patch because it'll make the joke about 3D films. Or was it <laughs> something um, else behind that? There's not much else behind it. No. <laughs> uh, my writing partner, Daniel, I think it was a little bit of an homage to Twin Peaks or something. But right. um, but no, but it we just, it adds a little bit of weirdness and menace yeah. at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, and everyone's seen Richard in a million things, but this is the first film he's ever done an eye patch. So, right. Yeah, right, so cool. it was like, uh, and he, and he had also we shot his scenes right after that COVID break. Oh right, he, okay. He had lost about thirty pounds because he'd been going to the gym for six months. Right, and he just he looks physically, and he had a beard. You know, he had a little bit of a beard. Yeah, um, he just physically looked really different than than what I had seen him in my own previous film, which was yeah, covered yeah. on Huey and other things. He just physically looked and felt different. And then with the eye patch, it was like, whoa, is that still Richard Kind? Well, it yeah. is. You know, you hear his voice and you know it is. Oh, as soon as his voice comes um, on, you know, you and know his, is, yeah. his his was the one character that we kind of wrote with him in mind because right. I worked with him before. I knew I could, if his schedule was available, I knew I could get him again. And, and thankfully we did. Yeah. So is he your favorite character in the film then? Um, maybe, I mean, yeah, uh, you, you sort of demand a favorite. So yeah, Yeah. sure. We'll go with Richard kind. Okay, Um, cool. (laughs) You know, and it's, and it's very, there's another character very quick and you miss him, but, uh, Lloyd Kaufman, the founder of trauma films, uh, plays Connie's boss, uh, very quickly. Very quickly. (laughs) Yeah. But he was, he, Lloyd's an old friend of mine. So it was fun to put him in the movie. Yeah. And do you have a, a favorite scene? My favorite scene is probably the, the dinner party and that that rant I talked about earlier. Do you oh, have yeah. a favorite scene? Now, uh, you know, I think for me, one of the favorite scenes is when the two characters, Connie and Paul, are are, and this is one of these long scenes where they're yeah. they're kind of having this argument and they, and they walk out of outside but into this kind of outside corridor, and we we dolly over and then we zoom in on them and then we, we then we zoom back yeah. and it's about a three minute long scene and really everything had to go perfectly from a yeah, technical standpoint yeah. acting standpoint like to make sure the boom isn't in the shot you know and yeah, yeah. but their microphones still work and and the birds weren't too loud you know like there's all these and we're running out of light but let's shoot it in the morning and then we'll do it again. so i think that was one where i think we we committed to that style of shooting for right. that shot Cause we were starting to shoot it at like four in the afternoon yeah, and it just was getting too dark. And we said, because we're the only ones staying at this motel, let's just leave the dolly track set up yeah. and come back the next day and, and knock it out in the morning and the light will be good. Everyone on the cast and crew knows what we're doing. And yeah. we did. And we committed and we worked and we didn't shoot any other coverage, <laughs> nothing else to cut to. Yeah. So, you know as a director you're you're uh you know you're on the tightrope yeah. um so that one and then and then i think also the um similarly there's a five minute long one or where they first start listening to the tape yeah and that was something that took many takes to get right but again everyone on the crew is doing something there's people hidden all over that room yeah, moving much, things yeah. moving you know giving cues the actors had to react to just these lines of cues because we hadn't recorded the audio yet. Oh, so gosh. that was something that was, um, it was a fun challenge, but everybody on the cast and crew really rose to it. And, and it's a true testament that, you know, filmmaking is a collaborative art form because if you didn't have 20 people there, you couldn't have pulled it off. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really weird because obviously in the film, it just looks like it's the two people and that that's it in that scene. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. And then everyone else is hiding behind 
TVs and under tables and yeah. so yeah, if you could see what was really going on, it's a whole different scene. It'd be interesting to see, yeah. Yeah. Um is there anything in the film you wish you'd done in a different way or you'd filmed in a different way? Well, I learned a long time. Don't don't think about that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but no, I mean, in the, you know, despite having a global pandemic in the middle, you know, there yeah. were, there <laughs> that's was, the one thing you do differently. Not doing uh, it yeah. Other than that. Um, but I think what it did give us, it gave us that six month pause where yeah. we could then kind of refine the, the, the later scenes and come back to them. We, thankfully we didn't have to reshoot anything. Um, but we did, you know, we did tweak a few scenes and add a couple scenes and take scenes out in a way that I think we couldn't have or wouldn't have if we had just shot straight through. Yeah. And in that sense, I think that helped us creatively. Um, but I think it is not beneficial psychologically to think about what you would have done because that's not there. That doesn't exist and it will never <laughs> exist. So. Um, but no, but I'm pretty happy with the film. I mean, I'm, you oh, know, yeah. and, and I think everyone associated be, yeah. with it. I mean, we're all still talking to each other. Yeah. I mean, to me, the most successful scene is the fact that it is the sense that nobody died. Yeah. Um, which, you know, we laugh about, but this was at a time when yeah, yeah. Didn't, I was literally, call, you know, when it was getting, we we're getting close to shutting down. I was yeah. calling the director's guild saying, what happens if I die? Who gets to direct the movie? And they're like, <laughs> we don't get a lot of directors calling us and asking us that. <laughs> but that's, we had to do that. You know, I mean, everyone in whatever field we were in, we're sort of confronting these, these moral issues. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've got Vondi Curtis Hall who's 70 years old and a yeah. brilliant, wonderful person and an actor. And I'm like, dude, don't die in the next <laughs> six months. We need you for one more scene. And he's thinking the same thing too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but it, but that kind of thing really helped bring us all together too. Then when we did come back and it was like, oh, we all survived. We, nobody got COVID. <laughs> We're nobody back. Died. Uh, nobody put on weight that was on camera. You know, of course, no, yeah. You know, that uh, that would have, I mean, I think the only person who really put on weight was our sound recorders, but that was okay because he's not <laughs> yeah, on camera. So it doesn't matter, matter, yeah. You know, um, but it was, but I brought my sourdough. I smuggled it back into New York <laughs> the second time around and I was baking sourdough Um uh, cinnamon rolls for everyone on the cast and crew and that was <laughs> that went over well so I, did, I, yeah yes yeah, yeah, so i really perfected my baking <laughs> well, i could be on great british baking show i think absolutely you should um, get in touch with them see if you can come on It'd be great yeah. <laughs> um you talk about richard kind being in it obviously he's a, a fantastic actor but you've also got although he's not actually on camera he's only on voice we've got bruce campbell and ted Ramey who you're talking mm -hmm. about um so you said that you, you, Bruce stuff, it was all done on Zoom. So what's it like to work with someone like that on a Zoom call? Because, I mean, that <laughs> yeah, must be it, bizarre to direct via Zoom. Uh, it was very strange. And I to this day, I've never met Bruce in person. Right. Um, but, uh, uh, but, you know, the, this was the, the original plan for recording the 18 and a half minute gap was that it would happen um, after after post-production sometime yeah. in post-production and whenever we could get these actors all in a studio together in LA and record it, you know, properly and probably very expensive to get everyone there yeah, yeah, yeah. and hire a, a, you know, proper engineer. And then, you know, the zoom thing was kind of new to everyone. And a couple of the actors had, you know, had decent microphones or home recording setups yeah. for different things. And it was really at this time where actors couldn't, 
you know, they couldn't perform on stage. They couldn't perform yep. on screen. Yep. Um, they were just sitting at home, like twiddling their thumbs. Uh, Ted Raimi was stuck at a new girlfriend's apartment in Canada and couldn't get <laughs> out there. You know, like weird thing. Bruce was at his house in Oregon. John was at his house in L.A. And so what we did is we kind of figured out that we could use Zoom sort of as a guide track. Yeah. But then simultaneously, each actor was recording sort of higher quality yes. tracks on on like a QuickTime recorder. They all use slightly different software and yeah, yeah. hardware and then email me those tracks and then I would sync them up to the Zoom. Yeah. But what was great about Zoom is uh, and it was just me and, and Daniel Moya, my writing partner, writing producing partner. It was just the two of us and the actors. And, yeah. and we did two sessions, one session with Bruce and Ted and one session with Bruce and John. And uh, and it was great because the actors could see each other. We could yeah, see yeah. them, you know, and um, I mean, they, you know, there's all these little delays that you get in Zoom yeah. uh, that are kind of annoying, but we could tighten things up then with the uh, with the original tracks. And, um, you know, and Bruce is the one that suggested Ted Raimi. I mean, those guys have known each other since since they oh, were yeah. kids, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sam Raimi's brother. And they had actually done some Nixon comedy bits for one right. of their comedy albums once so they were you know and they're great because we did one little bit where i was just like okay guys improvise you know <laughs> and they did and they went with it and that was a lot of fun um and we had the time to do it but it was also it was great for john crier he was going through uh, like a lot of family issues as yeah. all this work. he only had like an hour or an hour and a half and if we were doing it live that would have been tough to schedule yeah, yeah. zoom like great okay we're in we're out and he was fanboying out about bruce working with bruce <laughs> he never worked with bruce before so that was a, that was a lot of fun just yeah. to see these actors from different eras and different genres kind of all working together in, yeah. in different ways, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that 18 and a half minute track must be a, a, a wonderful piece just to listen to. Cause I mean, it, it yeah. does play over the film and there's bits of it that unfortunately, I suppose there's so much going on on screen whilst it's playing, yeah. you kind of are taken away from what's actually going on the tape. But yeah. I, I recommend if, you... if you're watching the film uh, to watch it with subtitles, yeah, um, so that may help. Or, or watch uh, it. We thought about having them on screen. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think on the on the DVD we may we may do that as a separate audio track just right. by itself. Um, yeah, as an extra because yeah, everyone's been asking like, oh, what does it sound like just by itself? And it, yeah, it sounds I, good. I must admit, I would like to listen just to the, just the eighteen and a half minutes just yeah, to see what it yeah. sounds like. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great and thing. and then in the in the end credits, you hear them talking about the hot rock. Yes. Um, and that was—that's almost word for word from that tape that we oh, right, discovered. Okay. Yeah, and that was fun. Uh, to, to, we were like, "Oh yeah, we got to do that. We got to do our little homage to the Hot Rock." Excellent. Yeah. Um. Get. I think we're getting towards the end of this. Um. I normally ask about remakes and things like that, but that's not something you're you're going to do. So, what what's next on your list of things? Are, are you directing, writing? What what what's next for Dan? Well, we're in the middle of a writer's strike here in L.A. Okay. That's and good. so I can't, uh, I'm not in the writer's guild, but I've been going to their picket lines and baking yeah. blueberry scones. So, <laughs> nice. you know, that's been keeping me busy. Well, I want to make sure I'm on the good side of all the writers. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, and the and the, the, the the actors may go on strike next week. So right. uh, it, everyone's kind of in limbo. So there's a few scripts that I've thought about or friends are writing or have written 
Um, there's an old, I just did a fun thing this weekend. There's an old script I wrote 27 years ago called Stamp and Deliver that we almost made twice, including Peter Fonda was going to star in it. Wow. Neil Young was going to produce and do all the sound, the yeah. music. And um, we just uh, did a, it just got published. I don't have it in front of me, but it just got published in a, in a kind of book form. I mean, still right. screenplay format. But a new publisher is doing is publishing screenplays. We did a reading of it on on Saturday night, and then at the reading, we announced that that uh, my illustrator friend Matt Fuller and I are pre are prepping a graphic novel version of that. Oh, right, excellent. So, because um, yeah, you just kind of have to be media agnostic with these things. Like yeah. maybe it's a feature film, maybe twenty seven years later it's a graphic novel. <laughs> you know, you don't want to get too precious about it. Um, 18 and a half. I mean, the other thing that we're doing on that is we are probably turning that into a play adaptation. All oh, right. Okay. And so there's the theater company and yeah, Omaha so that, works, yeah. that we're working with that on that. And so that's coming together. Um, and then I've got a bunch of old movies that I need to sort of, you know, scan the net, rescan the negative and, and, and do some archiving on them and get them back out there. So, yeah, yeah. um, yeah, all these, you know, that's a problem. The more films you make, yes. you still have to deal with them. You know, yeah. does, whether they were 30 years ago or 10 years ago or, or or last year. I mean, on 18 and a half, we're still dealing with accounting and taxes issues wow. and um, foreign sales. I mean, that's yeah. a Zoom I was just on with the 101 Films guys this morning. We're, you know, we're trying, we're still trying to get it out there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know we had done a whole oscar campaign with it which uh especially for the music and we yeah were, you know brasilia bella which is the main song that Luis and i wrote was an oscar contender according wow. to all the all the trades and and so that was a lot of fun and so we recorded we released the soundtrack digitally and then also did some some vinyl some soft vinyl uh versions of a couple of the songs and that was yeah. fun to get out there so you know we've really had fun with this and it's an era and characters that we continually keep coming back to and talking about like oh i mean just my writing partner and i were like oh should we do a sequel should we do a, a yeah tv series it's something we've talked about with willa about you know what is what happens to her character yeah, yeah. and we have and we do have some ideas so yeah um but you know it's just the hollywood is so weird right now it's hard to know what to do next but you know, and my advice for for aspiring filmmakers and writers out there is, you know, if you if you like a character or 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 an actor or a style that you have, just just keep milking it because you never know what medium it's going to show up in next. You know, yeah. I mean, this year everything's all about episodic and streaming, but next yeah, year yeah. it might not be. You know, it may go back to independent feature films. Yeah. Or it could be, you know, or everything's on a podcast and, you yeah. know, it, are there some podcast opportunities? So, um, you know, just uh, to uh, just, you know, follow your your uh, creative instincts and 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 follow your characters rather yeah. than trying to second guess what Hollywood is going to do. <laughs> next. You, you yeah, can't. And you they you can't. No, no, no. And they I mean, they can't. So no. why should you try? Technology changes every day. So who knows what technology is going to come exactly. along that goes, oh, I, we could do this now. So Yeah, but I think the basics of storytelling and interesting characters, yeah. you know, put Richard Kind in anything and, and you'll be fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, you talk about, about Connie then, but the fact you were talking about what happens to her next. I mean, that is, the film is bookend by this Connie sitting in the car. 
um, mm-hmm. listening to the radio and then crying at the end. But it, this feels like there's more to Connie's story. Do you think there's there's more? Can we go back to this land and is there a oh, sequel yeah. possible? Yeah, I mean, without giving away everything, some people die, but not everyone does. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, you know, it's a movie, so did they really die? Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, the, the thing that we always wanted with, and it's a little bit of an open-ended ending, uh, and not everybody gets everything that's in the ending when they do, but the idea is that you had this character that started as this kind of, you know, passive character working in a dead end job. And now she's gone through all this stuff Mm. and she's at and it's really hard to see um largely because we didn't light it very well but she's wearing lena's coat at the very end oh she's right like, i didn't notice that yeah because she had put her coat on paul ah, of course yeah it. yeah and you see her rubbing like the fur collar and that so that's lena's coat like almost no one has noticed this no i almost better didn't yeah, what, rewatch you know, it now. <laughs> puts, yeah and she puts her sunglasses on and the idea is that she has become this much more confident character yeah. who kind of has to assume the life that Lena had, had been leading Yeah, this operative to put it in another word or an assassin or spy. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't know exactly what, but she's that. And, and if you listen to the English language lyrics of Brasilia Bella, which is the song on the radio in the very, at the very end of the yeah. movie, the, as soon as we, cut to black it's the the lyric is she's a secret agent cinderella ah uh, right okay that's that's what's next for her ah. it's right th- it's right there in the song you know except it's um, in portuguese so nobody knows <laughs> yeah and um and so that's more yeah because she can't you know all this bloodshed has happened she can't go back to her old life no no of course not no and she's learned so much about herself and about, yeah. about the world so uh one way or another she is now going to become some sort of a secret agent cinderella you know wow so, sounds fab I, I i want to see that now i must i know <laughs> i'd like I, to see what happens next i must be yeah, it's one of those things no, and 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 willa was wonderful to work with and yeah and talked about like what what she could do you know with yeah. this character moving forward i could see it going into it being a, a long format tv show with lots of episodes yeah yeah, absolutely. And, and, they, and there is there are a few other weird historical things that happened. Yeah. In 1975, like that within the year after uh, there was a break in at Howard Hughes's warehouse in Hollywood. Right. That is a crazy story, but it's something that you could easily see Willow or the hippies or some of the other people getting involved. They involved in, yeah. In a fictionalized version of it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so there's definitely like historical things we could do with it next. Excellent. Wow. I'm, I'm intrigued now, really intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Is there anything that you think we've missed out? Is there anything you want to talk about that we've missed or we've gone into it in enough detail? I mean, you no, talk a lot about music. music my contractor's out here. So, um, <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. Uh, yeah, that's the other thing is I've been working on the house with my family. So. <laughs> That's the bigger issue. I carved a spoon out of wood yesterday. We had wow. some leftover wood. Wow. So, you know, yeah. anything to keep busy and creative. The one thing I, I do at the end is um, I try and get people to try and sell the film to me in about 30 seconds. Now, I have a feeling that you're going to be brilliant at this because I reckon you've tried to sell this film many times before. So could you sell it to me in about 30 seconds? 
Swingers, hippies, and nefarious forces in 1974 with a bossa nova beat. That was less than 30 seconds. Brilliant. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I, we have shorter elevators in the U.S. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. yeah, I hope everyone checks it out one way or the other um, or, or listen to the soundtrack, even if you can't see the movie. You know? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and you can follow me. Should I say that? Yeah, please. Yeah, where yeah, we get please. find you on, on World Wide Web. I'm on the Twitter. I think I may be the last person on Twitter. At, no, no, I'm, I'm still there. Dan Mervish, <laughs> uh, and Facebook and Instagram. I think Instagram may be D Mervish, D M I R V I S H, and my website, danmervish.com. Um, and for any filmmakers out there, please buy my book, uh, <laughs> The Cheerful Subversive <laughs> Guide to Independent Filmmaking. Uh, which is available as an ebook or a physical book or an audio book with me using this microphone right oh, here. Oh, excellent. Um, right. And you can just listen to me ramble. If you liked me for the last hour, you'll love me for 10 hours. <laughs> I should put links to all those things in the show notes so people can find awesome. them. So that'll make it easy. Yeah. Thanks, Gav. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah. And bye bye for now. Thank God we're erasing this, Al. This tape would have killed us. 